0: Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Bonnie Lee and welcome to Writing About Crime. I'm investigating true crime cases and searching for the disconnect that makes a case different than it appears on the surface. I'm so excited to have you here listening, so let's jump in. To Tina Fontaine's story. Born in the early 1960s, Raymond Cormier is like a Canadian hobo. He's crossing the landscape only to stop for short visits along his trail. He's there to inspect the hospitality of the courts and the prisons from the coastal maritimes to the inviting open prairies. In 1978, He's in his mid-teens and living in the seaside community of Shediac, New Brunswick. They charge and convict Raymond Cormier of break and enter. It was the beginning of a legacy that led to an impressive record, composed of over 92 convictions and 23 years behind bars. Today we're talking about Raymond Cormier, so please don't leave me. Two months after his break-in and conviction, Raymond Cormier is again before the New Brunswick Court, where he's convicted on two charges of mischief causing damage to property and sentenced to 60 days in jail. He wasn't long out of jail when he finds himself before a judge, this time on assault and breach of probation, and he's sentenced to four months. In June the next year, Cormier is sentenced to three years in prison after he receives a conviction of arson and possession of a weapon. He is then released in 1981, and only two years later, in March of 1983, he's sentenced to 18 months behind bars for aggravated assault, assault causing bodily harm, and theft under $200. He's then paroled on January 23, 1984. Shortly after, and still in Shediac, during March of 1984, he once again is invited for 45 days on an assault conviction. Moving on to Moncton, New Brunswick, he continues on his crime spree, where he's convicted on a string of offenses committed throughout 1985 in Moncton. These offenses include sending threatening letters and making threatening calls, theft over $200, and assault. He has then extended the most generous, lengthy stay to that point, when on December 12, 1985, he is found guilty of robbery in Truro, Nova Scotia. Not demonstrating himself to be a man to change his ways as often as his location, by September 1988, he is in Guelph, Ontario, There, he's convicted on escaping lawful custody and sentenced to 60 days on top of the sentence he was already serving. By 1991, Cormier is living in Kitchener, Ontario, where he finds a conviction for a list of crimes in the city over the eight years he remains there. And in 1991, he sees a sentence of three years in federal prison. This is for armed robbery and attempted escape from Waterloo, Ontario police. He also receives a conviction for drug trafficking inside the Millhaven Institution during that time. In 1997, he's liberated from prison and then resumes a life of delinquency. He is convicted on a compilation of bad activity, including fraud, possession of counterfeit money, and theft under $5,000. He's sentenced to 22 months in 1997, When he's convicted for those charges on January 13th of 1988. In June 1999 he is awarded a five-year prison sentence for crimes committed in Kitchener including armed robbery, forcible confinement, possession of a weapon, assault with a weapon, and dangerous operation of a motor vehicle among other charges. A year later he's sentenced in Napanee, Ontario, for possession of property obtained by crime and theft under $5,000. These crimes were committed while he was incarcerated at the Collins Bay Institute. He was also convicted of drinking and driving and dangerous operation of a vehicle on charges stemming from 1998 in Shediac. Cormier was released from prison on March 2004, but he was back in court in Calgary, Alberta that same year. He faced charges of theft under $5,000 and fraud under $5,000, which stemmed from his time inside the Drumheller Penitentiary. Raymond Cormier is recommitted that same month for violating his statutory release, and he remained behind bars until December of the same year. Once made a free man, he continues on to Calgary where he commits another batch of offenses, including mischief, obstructing a police officer, and theft between 2005 and 2007. That April, he is sentenced to five months for possessing property obtained by crime over $5,000. On Valentine's Day 2019, a 72-year-old senior is entering a Medicine Hat, Alberta parking garage. He sees Raymond pounding on the wheel of a stolen vehicle. He's then held at knife point and robbed of his wallet. Raymond gets back into the stolen vehicle and ends up taking the police on a hot pursuit through the city core and ends up crashing the vehicle. Now on foot, he's cornered while attempting to smash the glass door of a provincial building. Cormier is sentenced to seven years, but with time served, he would only have to spend five years in prison. Raymond Cormier, failing to win an appeal on his sentence in April of 2010, is sent to Stony Mountain Federal Prison in Manitoba. He's released under statutory provision, allowing freedom after serving two-thirds of a sentence. Raymond spent time and committed crimes inside several federal institutions. So when he's released, he heads into the nearby city of Winnipeg. Raymond Cormier is now homeless and collects various pieces of scrap metal to earn money and supply himself with drugs and alcohol. It seems inevitable that he will meet with a judge soon enough. But under what circumstances may have been tougher to predict. Tina Michelle Fontaine was born on the 1st of January in 1999. She was raised by her great aunt Thelma Favel and her uncle Joseph Favel for over 10 years. Tina's early life started out tough. She lived in the Sagine First Nation Reserve and later in Powerview, Pine Falls, Manitoba. Her father, Eugene, when 41, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was told he would not survive longer than four months. Tina's great aunt, Thelma, helped take care of her and her father. At one point, he went on a three-day bender in 2011. He was with his friends, Nicholas Abraham and Jonathan Starr. They argued about money and Eugene was beaten many times over several hours. Tina's father was then dragged out to a shed and in that cold fall night, he was left there tied up and without a shirt on. Her father's violent death deeply affected Tina. Her great aunt said she was very hurt, very lost, and that's when she drifted away. Tina's mother, also named Tina, or Valentina Duck, had long ago left the family and gone to Winnipeg. She had worked as a sex worker for a time, and she struggled with drug and alcohol addiction, and so her children could not remain in her care. In 2014, after Tina's father, Eugene, had been gone for three years, Tina and her mother became acquainted again Tina started to visit her in Winnipeg occasionally and that's when Thelma started noticing that Tina's life began to unravel. Tina was struggling to come to terms with details of the trial proceedings related to her father's murder. She had overheard a discussion detailing how badly the father's body was beaten and she heard descriptions of his serious injuries and it was very upsetting to her. When it came time for Tina to attend court and give a victim impact statement, Thelma noted serious changes were happening in her attitude and her behavior. She was slowly drifting away. She cried and was so lost without her dad and seemed to be unable to function without him. She had decided to get a tattoo of angel wings with her father's date of birth and his date of death always remind her of how much she loved him yet given some time tina started to perform well in school again she was slight and endearing she was excited about learning to drive and was looking forward to finishing school and working with children in some capacity although her immediate parents had struggles she grew up in a safe and happy environment by the end of June, she was excited about passing all of her classes and was hoping she could make another trip into Winnipeg to see her mom as a treat for performing well on all of her academics. In the past, Thelma had called Valentina Duck's caseworker and made sure that it was safe for Tina and her sister Sarah to go to Winnipeg and visit with their mother. She was always reassured that Valentina was taking care of her two other children responsibly and she was maintaining her home. Thelma felt things were okay for the girls to go and visit. She didn't worry to call ahead this time. She gave Tina a $50 calling card to phone home if she wanted to talk or come home sooner. It was a precaution in the event that things didn't go well with the visit. However... Since the previous times Thelma had checked in, Valentina had lost custody of her two children and she was back on the streets engaging in her old lifestyle. Unknowing, Tina Fontaine and her sister traveled to Winnipeg. They came all the way from the Sagene First Nation on June 30th to visit with their birth mother. Thelma believed they were supposed to stay for one week but Sarah changed her mind and returned home almost immediately. Tina stayed. Things didn't work out well on her visit early in the week, but her plans changed when near the Stella Avenue and Salter Street Bridge, she met 18-year-old Cody Mason. They would begin dating, and Tina told him she had run away and had no place to stay, so he took her to his dad's place on Selkirk Avenue. She stayed with him there for about two weeks. While out walking, Tina and her boyfriend stopped Raymond Cormier, who was riding by on his bicycle on Charles Street, searching for scrap metal. Mason and Tina asked Cormier if they could crash at his place because they could no longer stay together at Mason's father's place. Raymond was homeless, but he offered to take them to another house to sleep and they found themselves sleeping on a basement in another person's home. The young couple hung out with Cormier a few times after that, and he had given them Gabby's while they sat and visited. Gabby's, the street name for Gabapentin, is not a party favor. It is a drug administered to patients suffering from seizures. It's become abused on the streets because of the high you can experience when you indulge in higher doses of the medication. Ida Beardy lived at 686 Alexander Avenue. She had nine children, and from time to time, one or some of them would come and live with her back at home. Her daughter, Chantel Beardy, who was 15, didn't live there any longer but she spent a majority of her time hanging out with her mom in the summer of 2014. There was a lot of people coming and going at the busy household, and that summer, a new face coming around would be known as Frenchie. He was homeless, and had gotten to know Ida's daughter, Tracy, at the Robbins Donuts where she worked on Salter Street. He was also familiar with her other daughter, Chantelle, because she was often at the shop visiting her sister, and she'd have coffee while she worked. The sisters had gotten to know him over a couple of months, and Frenchie would eventually come over to have beers, and sometimes he would bring over drugs. Chantelle would smoke weed with him occasionally, and she soon discovered he also went by the name Sebastian. She didn't know Raymond's real name, because... He never used his birth name, and after getting to know Frenchie better, Ida allowed him to stay in a tent in her backyard. He would bring around stolen bikes for the family to use as part of an attempt to show appreciation for their generosity. He would drink strawberry margaritas a lot, and he was a scrapper, meaning he would strip wiring and old motors in the backyard. He had a bunch of metal scraps and cords, and he would burn a lot of them in a fire pit in the backyard. He used it almost every day. His possessions seemed to be basically blankets and a bunch of tools, like kits, drills, and saws. He claimed his clothes and blankets were from Value Village Bins, a thrift store that collects used items to resell and then gives the funds to local charities. He had blankets that were red and green and other colors. He also had a duvet cover, white with a pattern of leaves flowing around the bottom. He would hang his blankets on the fence to air them out because Ida didn't have a washer and dryer. Chautel noticed the duvet because it had two large burn holes. They were unsightly on the elegantly designed bedding. Ida would allow him to shower at her home. She would share her food with him and even clean his undergarments. Frenchie, or Sebastian, would come home and he would leave frequently and then return again with strangers to hang out by the fire pit. Frenchie seemed interested in Ida's daughter. She could tell by the way he looked at her. Chantel thought he was a cool guy. However, with time, he seemed unpleasant because he was making comments about how she looked in her summer shorts that summer while hanging around downtown at a mall called Portage Place and also in the downtown hotel area. Chantel met Tina Fontaine. These are popular hangouts for a lot of kids with not a lot of money and nothing to do. The summer was going nicely until a few weeks later, Frenchie came back to the tent and he discovered that his bike was gone. He lost his temper after realizing that it was stolen and in a fit of rage he used a hammer to destroy Ida's fire pit. He was asked to get his belongings and leave. July 14th, in the early evening, Andre returned home from work and saw a young girl and two men on the lawn outside of his apartment. The girl introduced herself as Tina and asked for a cigarette. She told him the younger man was her boyfriend, but she didn't introduce the other man. Tina told him she and the men were couch surfing because they didn't have a place to stay and they were selling weed to make a bit of money. She told him they also did pills She didn't have a phone, but she took Andre's number. Later, around 10 p.m., she called him and asked if he would allow her to crash on his couch. But he turned her down because he was already going to bed. By July 17th, when Tina didn't arrive home when she was supposed to and didn't contact her by phone, Thelma was panicked and she contacted Child and Family Services. She voluntarily put Tina in their care so that someone in Winnipeg would be actively searching for her. Thelma had fostered 67 children in her lifetime and felt that she was making the correct decision. Tina was located shortly after and social worker Kimberly Shute helped with Tina's case. They didn't have a shelter facility to house her immediately so she was placed in a downtown hotel with a CFS worker who monitored the young people staying there, safe and off the streets, presumably. Tina's placement was at the Capri Motel. She awol right away and was reported missing. This practice of using hotels downtown as temporary emergency shelter would later come under tremendous public scrutiny. Too many vulnerable youths would leave the hotel and find or cause a lot of trouble. From getting involved with gangs, meeting other youths involved in the sex trade, and being introduced to drugs and crime, it was becoming common for the youths to be found assaulted on the streets or assaulting each other while cruising the city. The service now has strict rules about housing youths in downtown hotels, regardless of space issues at the shelters. Angie Duck, Valentina's sister, and Tina's aunt, saw her niece five or six times that summer. On July 22nd, Tina snapped photos with the Duck family, which were then posted on Facebook. Tina stopped by other times and visited her aunt and she was happy to spend time with her. The day after the photos were posted, social worker Kimberly Shute saw Tina and she was walking along Salter Street, so she offered her a ride. Tina told her she was staying at a group home. She had been reported missing on July 18th, but that report was canceled when Kimberly picked her up. So Carol Travers, a Deanway group home worker was running the home where Tina was placed on July 23rd. Tina stayed there for a couple of days, but on July 26th, she missed curfew at 10.30 p.m. Carol called around, but could not locate Tina. She filed a missing person report with the police sometime after midnight. Tina returned to the group home a few hours after she was reported missing, so the police were called. And the missing person report was cancelled. Stephen Whitehurst, a longtime friend of the Fontaine family, saw Tina three or four times that summer. He knew Tina Fontaine very well. He would joke that he knew her since she was in Pampers. His common law partner had recently given birth, and the couple planned to visit Sagin. Tina had mentioned she might want to catch a ride with him when they headed home to Fort Alexander. A community near where Tina lived with her great-aunt. She attempted to reach him on July 28th, but he didn't get Tina's message for some time. He was already driving through an area with spotty cell coverage when she left the message. He saw the social media message later, but by then it was too late so Tina missed her opportunity to catch a ride back home to Thelma. Two days later, the group home noticed that Tina had been missing curfew again, and they reported her missing. No sign of Tina is seen or heard from by the 1st of August, so her bed is given to another person in care. Tina was with her boyfriend Cody, and on that August-long weekend... She visited with her aunt Lana Fontaine and she stayed with her for two nights. They had a nice weekend and she wasn't aware that Tina had abandoned her spot at the group home and was reported as a missing person. A couple of days later, Tina visited her again and had Cody with her. She complained that she was cold, so Lana gave her a sweater at the end of their visit. That was the last time that Lana ever saw her niece. On August 6th of that summer, two pickup trucks are stolen in Winnipeg. A black GMC Sierra with tools inside disappeared from 726 Region Avenue, and a blue Ford F-150, which also had tools in it, was stolen from 133 Mason Street. The owner of that vehicle, Donald Schneider, was landscaping at a home in St. Boniface, and left the keys in the ignition for five minutes as he moved supplies from his vehicle to the yard. When he returned, the truck was gone. Sarah Holland met Raymond Cormier through Mr. Ernest D. Wolfe that summer. He had first met and worked with Raymond on the range in Stony Mountain, a prison in Manitoba. They became friends, and Raymond spent some time at the home she shared with her boyfriend, Tyler Morrison. Raymond would occasionally spend the night and the three would regularly do drugs together. On August 6th, Tina arrived at their home and she was upset about her boyfriend, Cody Mason, leaving the city. Sarah was staying mostly upstairs in the bedroom while her boyfriend, Tyler Morrison, was in and out of the house and at some point, Raymond Cormier had also entered the home with him. Tyler said that he and Raymond were moving some tools from the back of a truck that Raymond was driving. At first, Tyrell had no idea whose truck it was but Raymond at some point in the day told him that he had stolen it that same day Cody Mason, Tina's boyfriend, flew back to his home in a community called St. Teresa Point. He left around noon. Upset, Tina rode a bike to Carmen Avenue where Sarah Holland, Tyrell Morrison, and Raymond Cormier, who she knew as Sebastian, were hanging out. Sarah and Tyrell first met Tina sometime in July, so they knew her and all of them were inside the home, just hanging around. Tyrell noticed Raymond laying over to put his hand on Tina's lap, and she seemed uncomfortable. Later, Tina came to join Sarah in the upstairs bedroom. She asked if she could remain up there, because Sebastian was creeping her out. Sarah agreed, so the two were upstairs until shortly after Tyrell and Raymond came upstairs and she saw Raymond try to grab Tina's breast, making the comment, "'Just do me.'" Tina responded, calling him bad names and saying, "'You know I'm 16.'" Raymond laughed it off to make it seem like a joke. Sarah felt it seemed he was serious and was saving face. At some point in the evening, Raymond took her bike to get more drugs and he ended up selling it for two grams of marijuana. He and Tina got into a disagreement about it. It wasn't only about the bike. Tina was ready to leave because Sebastian was being so inappropriate, and she was uncomfortable. Everyone could see it. Tina left the bedroom around 10 p.m., and Sarah heard loud voices in the back alley She specifically heard Tina saying she was going to call the cops. She was threatening to call the police about the Ford F-150 truck that was full of tools. Sebastian stole it that day. Sarah also heard Raymond's voice escalating and could hear him distinctly mention the word river. She could make out Tina's words much better than Raymond's, but the couple of minutes were full of yelling and screaming. Tyrell also heard the raised voices and heard a lot of profanity, including hearing Raymond calling Tina a bitch. The argument lasted about 10 minutes, and when Raymond returned inside the house, he seemed angry, telling Tyrell he had to move the truck down the block. During later conversation, twice, he asked Tyrell, "'Do you really think she'll call the police?' That evening at 10:18, Tina called 911 to report that her friend Sebastian stole the blue truck. A man on parole living at a halfway house on Main Street and Magnus Avenue was out having a cigarette a few feet away from where the payphone was. He introduced himself as Robert Sango, and Tina asked him for a smoke when she hung up. She sat down with him for a few minutes. And told him she'd been at a friend's house but left because an older man was trying to make a move on her. She confided that she didn't have anywhere to go and she was afraid someone was following her. Her boyfriend had moved back home that day. Her older friend Sebastian sold her bike for some marijuana, and everything was going terribly. She told Robert that she had a friend that lived on Sutherland Avenue. So when she finished her cigarette, she thanked him and headed in the direction of her friend's home. Two days later, on August the 8th, two Winnipeg police constables, Cornelius Brock Jansen and Craig Wool, spotted a truck driving suspiciously in the area of Ellis Avenue and Furby Street around 5 in the morning. They pulled the truck over near Isabel Street and Logan Avenue. The man behind the wheel had a suspended driver's license and he was taken into custody. Tina was in the passenger seat and she told the officers that her name was Tessa Twohart, and then gave another fake name before identifying herself. Constable Huell did not see an alert on the police computer indicating that she was missing and Tina told Jansen she lied about her identity because she thought she was in trouble. She told him that she was staying at the Quest Inn, a hotel commonly used by CFS, or Child and Family Services. But Jansen did not ask her age. He said she looked mature, and he let her go. Later that day, near ten in the morning, Tina was spotted passed out in a parking lot, outside the University of Winnipeg's Helen Betty Osborne Center. The building, named as a memorial to the indigenous woman murdered by four white men up north in Paul, Manitoba. Her story is notable because it was decades before her murderers were identified. An inquiry was held in an effort for the province to understand how many people living in the community knew the details of her death and who was involved. Yet all levels of law enforcement were unable to close the case. In the end, it was determined that the heart of the matter rested in people's extreme racism and the segregation in the community that kept the Indigenous people from justice. That August morning, university security was called to help with Tina. Security supervisor Audrey Koenski called paramedics when she couldn't wake Tina. Paramedics were able to rouse her and walk her to a waiting ambulance around 10.30 in the morning, where a doctor was able to examine her. Around 11.20 a.m., Dr. Andrea Wilkie Gilmore, an ER doctor at the Health Sciences Center, examined Tina. When questioned about her activities leading up to her blackout, she said she had drank alcohol and taken marijuana and gabapentin. Blood and urine tests later showed that Tina had also had methamphetamine and cocaine in her system. A social worker at the hospital notified Southeast Child and Family Services. And so by 4 p.m. that day, social worker Kimberly Shute went to the Health Sciences Center and she sat at Tina's bedside while other CFS workers looked for a placement for her. They found space at the Best Western Charterhouse Hotel in downtown, where Tina could stay under their care. Kimberly noticed that Tina looked thin, so she made a stop on the way at a McDonald's drive through when they left the hospital. She hoped that it would give her time and opportunity to find out what was going on. Tina told Kimberly that she'd been hanging out with a much older man and a meth user named Sebastian and he was going to get her a bike. Kimberly didn't feel comfortable with this information, but didn't want to scare Tina out of staying in the care of Child and Family Services. So, she went on to tell her that if she stayed at a placement longer, CFS would get her a bike. Kimberly dropped Tina off at the Best Western and asked her what her plans were for the evening. Tina told her she was going to meet up with friends at Portage Place. Kimberly advised against it, but workers are not allowed to physically restrain the children. So if Tina demanded she wanted to go there, there was really nothing that Kimberly could do. With that, Tina was left in the care of a complete care worker hired by CFS to monitor teens place at hotels when there's insufficient space in the group homes. Tina looked tired and worn out, so the care worker tried to convince Tina to stay and rest. Tina didn't listen and said she was heading to Portage Place but would be back later. She left by 5.30 that night and she never returned. Her care worker took note of what Tina was wearing and reported her missing after midnight on August 9th, an hour and a half after she missed her curfew. On August 15th of that summer, the MS River Rouge, a 400-passenger cruise ship, left Sulker to go down the Red River to Winnipeg. It was the first run that year and Captain Alexander Cunningham said he remembers docking the nearly 500-ton boat at the Alexander docks. Cunningham came into the docks with both engines going and then reversed the props. Two days later, in the early afternoon, Dwayne Oliver, who was at the Alexander docks with his son, spotted something in the Red River. It was about 15 feet from shore. At first, he thought it was a rock. But when he got closer, he realized it was a body wrapped in what he observed looked like a light or tan blanket. He called 911 and a Winnipeg Fire Rescue crew showed up. Winnipeg police divers assisted with the recovery efforts. The body was wrapped in a Costco duvet cover that was knotted twice. There were 25 and a half pounds of rocks weighing it down. The body of Tina Fontaine was now found, and she was no longer a missing person.